This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about the seeds that live beneath the desert soils. We learn how long they're under there, where they're coming from, and how they end up shaping the ecosystems in deserts. It's a good show. Stay with us. went out to my field site there was nothing right so it's a dry summer there's no plants there and then I came back in the spring and it was just this burst of yellow and pink and red and it smelled like honey and it was just just glorious and I was thinking where did you guys come from <laughs> This is Science Moab. Today we're talking about seeds that are in our desert soils with Dr. Akasha Faist. Dr. Faist is a postdoc at the University of Colorado Boulder. She studies the surprisingly mysterious topic of seeds in the soil, how many there are, when do they sprout, and how can we use these existing seeds to create healthy ecosystems. The seeds in the soil are part of what is known as the seed bank. We begin our interview with Dr. Face telling us just what the seed bank is. So when people hear seed bank, it brings up kind of two separate avenues. One avenue with seed bank is they think of this area, this building that people store seeds and they keep them there. And with climate change, maybe over time, we'll be able to take those seeds from the seed bank and put them out. Um, so that's one avenue of seed bank. Um, the soil seed bank is where my research is focused on and what the soil seed bank is it's kind of similar to that building where it's it's the reserve of seeds below ground so like you had a crop of 10 different species and they all made it to seed and then they dropped those seeds and then they stayed below ground the next year five of those species come up you still have 10 species below ground waiting and so in um, dryland systems just for an example um, seed banks can be really important because we have such variable climate um, so you have a really wet year those seeds that are waiting below ground they're viable seeds they maybe take advantage of that that wet year and they can then sprout up. I often use it as kind of a picture into the history of what was once there and then it's the potential future of what can be. That's what I think of with the soil seed bank. I know it's going to vary from system to system mm-hmm. to system but what kind of plants are usually in a seed bank? Yeah that's a that's a good question. So it varies by system kind of what's been there above ground what's that vegetation that was able to drop the seeds but most commonly what you're going to find in the soil seed bank are these annual plants so the plants that germinate sprout flower drop their seed in one year so you have the most they they actually are very dense the most dense seed banks usually and the reason for that is because those are the ones that wait for the right conditions So if you think, again, using the drylands, you have that dry year, those annual plants kind of wait it out. They're small seeds, so they don't need many resources. They don't need water or energy just to stay in that dormant state. And then they get that big green year, they come up. Actually, sometimes in dryland systems, annual plants are invasive species. 
So if you think of mullen is one, that's one they say that can live in the seed bank for 200 years. Wow. Yeah, and it has tons and tons of tiny little seeds. And so if you get a disturbance, like a fire coming in, mullen, which I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with mullen, it's that really soft, fuzzy plant. So it, after a fire, it can come in and it will kind of just immediately after that disturbance pop up. And so you, you know that's coming from the seed bank because that disturbance happens, fire, whatever kind, and then there they are. But a lot of times you just have a flower that flowers and just drops right below them. It's a, it's a different strategy, and their strategy is, those that aren't wind dispersed, is to wait it out, to have a higher longevity, or, or we use the term persistence, in the seed bank over time. Actually, the seed bank below ground often has a higher diversity, so more species, more number of species, and higher number of seeds than you do find above ground. Maybe in the recent history, you haven't seen that species there. It could be a combination of that seed bank just has a high longevity, so it can persist like the mullein for 200 years, and you haven't seen it above ground, or it could have dispersed in. And that's that's definitely a possibility, that they, something is wind dispersed, or animals, right? Animals can move it in. They create these little caches. Sometimes you can find this one animal loves a certain species and it moves all the seeds to one location. So that that movement can happen that way. So it can be a combination of um, wind dispersal, but a lot of times it's just that longevity in the seed bank. How common is it for 200 years to be about the longevity of a seed? It's a longer one. So that's longer. Yeah. So the, the kind of normal... Well, that's the, the beauty of seed banks and the beauty of ecology in general. When we say normal, then the immediate, the ecologist takes a step back. Goes, well, normal, normal, let's, let's think about this. Um, so I would say you have these two kind of terms, and I, I've already touched on it with persistent, but there's the transient seed bank, and those are quick, right? So one to three years, they don't last very long. And those are generally bigger seeds that... Um, take more resources to maintain, um, and they generally bigger seeds. And there's just um, oftentimes a grass seed, not always, but grass seeds often are those transient seeds. And then you have the most persistent, which is 200 years. So that, that's definitely on the high scale. But it's not uncommon 10 years, 15, 20. Uh, I actually did work in California in vernal pools, which are temporary wetlands, and they have a very, very dense seed bank. And they're kind of follow that model where these temporary wetlands are very um, attuned to precipitation. So they need those conditions. They need it to be wet. And so if they don't get it, the seed banks just stay below. And they're like, I'm just going to wait this out. We actually did a study that we found there was a railroad track that got removed. And so they just kind of cleared out the railroad track. It's been there for about 40 years and just tons of species just popped right up. And that, that for sure was not... Um, immediate dispersal that was directly from the seed bank so so in that system 40 years is is nothing to them so I think it, it kind of varies system to system and species to species if you have a really stable system that maybe gets you know rain every year at the same time you might have a more transient seed bank generally it's those those higher di those really dynamic systems that rely on waiting it out until their proper conditions come in how do seeds get buried underground? Well, so one example, and this is using these vernal pools. So these vernal pools are in clay-dominated soil, so it's, um, so it's kind of this shrink and swell. So you get these cracks, 
And so the seeds are tiny and they fall on the surface and then these cracks open and swell and open and swell and the seeds fall into the cracks. That gives them that contact. In forested systems, you actually can find a number of seeds in that litter layer. So, so they can be in that litter layer. And then over time, again, with the shrinking and swelling or some maybe an animal disturbance happens, um, floods move, erosion, sedimentation. It's that, that dynamic process that moves them around. And sometimes if you think about it, you just have a small seed. It's going to find its way. It's really small. What is protecting the seed? So there's seed, the seed coat surrounding the seed. And it's, you know, if you think about, like I mentioned, this, there's that seed bank, let's say Norway or Colorado has a seed bank, this building. They, you want to keep, you want to keep the um, seeds in a dry and cool environment. And so they have everything they need and that seed coat protects them from the environment, right? So, so if you think about under the soil, they could be getting tossed around, they could fall into the cracks. They need that, that little coat to really help them. And actually that's something that's um, interesting too is, is why seeds germinate. Like what, what's the catalyst that makes them germinate? A lot of seeds need scarification to actually help seeds germinate. So scarification, well, so when us, say us humans, are trying to go do a, a restoration project and we have all these seeds, there's something as simple as using sandpaper, so just roughing up the seed coat, kind of loosening it up. Um, I've used hydrogen peroxide to like break down the seed coat. So that's human, that's our like active restoration side. But sometimes that wetting and drying can actually, that decomposition of the seed coat is, is all it takes. So it just takes a little breakdown of the seed coat over time and that's where the water, the wet and the dry, or the, sh the, the movement of the shrinking and swelling of the clays can kind of create that, what we're, we're simulating with the um, sandpaper scarification. And why does the seed coat need to be broken down? Is it just so then whatever is in it can germinate mm -hmm. out of it? Yeah, yeah. So if you think about that seed coat, like you want that, that little, that little cotyledon, that little, those first two baby leaves to push out through, they can be pretty small, right? So they, if they have less effort to push through, if that, that seed coat that has been their haven has helped them, well then that, if you kind of break that down, then that's their cue, like... I got it. Okay, we can do this. And then they can then put those two leaves, first baby cotyledons out, and then from there they can hopefully germinate and establish. You've mentioned it a little bit, but can you mm -hmm. talk more about what the plants or what the seeds are waiting for? Yeah. So what are the seeds waiting for? <laughs> uh, the seeds are waiting for the Primo condition. One example, and it's actually happening right now in the middle of March in um, just east of San Diego, there's a super bloom happening. So I think that we should all go and see it because it's going to be amazing. But what a super bloom is, is when you have these dryland systems that maybe you see one or two plants kind of hanging out most of the time. So think about Death Valley or the Atacama Desert. Most of the time, you don't see much above ground. You just see, there's that one plant. Oh, that's cute. Super bloom happens where um, you get 
wet conditions and kind of prolonged wet conditions. And then those seeds from the seed bank just say, this is what we've been waiting for. And they have had enough moisture, so they've had enough and then they've been in there long enough that potentially if they have a rough seed coat, they may need that. Not all seeds do have to have the seed coat scarified, but maybe that's what they're looking for. And then they all germinate and you just get this super bloom of just amazing flowers and other plants too that then, from my seed bank brain, are able to then replenish the seed bank and then they wait it out until that next big one. So, um, so that's kind of an example of the importance of the seed bank and it tangentially answers your question of like what are they waiting for sometimes it's light cues so you want a spring germination that's what you're waiting for so you so they wait for light cues sometimes it's growing degree days so it's temperature so take for a specific species when there mm-hmm. is the right conditions mm-hmm. do we have any idea of how many of those seeds that are possible that could germinate actually do yeah I don't think we do. I think, um, so that's kind of the beauty of having genetic diversity below ground, that you may have, let's say, species A, that's, um, you know, we call it the same species, but there was different populations from different, maybe it dispersed in through wind, but it's been waiting there over generations. And it might have a slightly different, species A is all one species, but it might have slightly different um, cues for what are making it. So it may, it may pop up with three rain events or something where it's also species A, but that genetic diversity kind of gives it a little bit different cues. So then it maybe takes five rain events. I mean, that, that's just kind of a generalization. But so I would say, I don't think we do know what's going to 100% come up. I mean, even in the super bloom, you're still leaving some below ground. Some may not have found that right cue. Maybe they're the more dry adapted and they're like, well, too much rain for me. I'm just going to hang out below ground. Um, so that's, and that's what kind of keeps that genetic diversity below ground is waiting for the right conditions can be different, not only from within across species but within species it's really interesting Mm. when there is a super bloom yeah how do the plants deal with the fact that you know maybe their pollinators aren't there waiting for them that is a very (laughs) very good question and one that is getting a lot of attention right now is the pollinator the timing of pollination too if we get different we get an early rain and maybe the pollinators are set on a different cycle maybe one's photo like daylight and one's temperature um, you may get this mismatch and so some species maybe are wind pollinated so then they're good to go but what about those ones that need the pollinators I mean that's a question that's being actively studied right now um, so you were talking about environmental cues mm-hmm. how does the or how do the expected changes in climate mm-hmm. or how are they thought to maybe interact with the seed bank so climate as we all know has varying degrees and so with the seed of of impact so with the seed bank if they do have specific requirements that maybe they need a certain amount of moisture um, and they don't get it you may lose the the longevity may not be enough so you may lose viability from a certain species if they they can only wait so long right right? so we talked about 
the one that lasted 200 years. I just like that one because it's just neat, right? So it's ready to go 200 years. Not all species can wait 200 years. And so, so some grass species um, can build a seed bank. So an example is Indian rice grass. So they can, they do have seeds below in the seed bank. Um, and I don't know an exact like their exact longevity, but it's not as long, it's not 200 years by any means. So if there's a number of dry years, dry years, dry years, and you're not, and it's so dry that you're not getting the grasses themselves to even produce seed, and the seed bank is getting depleted over time because of the longevity, you could really deplete the seed bank mm -hmm. over time. The seed banks in our area, mm -hmm. what do you think the proportion of native to non-native species are? Hmm. <laughs> Any guesses? Yeah. So one thing that happens when you have a disturbance, so fire or some sort of maybe off-road vehicle traffic or a disturbance, that often is an invitation for invasives. So you get, um, so because these are often disturbance adapted species, right? So I would say if you have a higher disturbed area, I think that that proportion is much higher mm -hmm. in, um, of invasive species in disturbed areas than the natives. Um, but if you have an area that has maintained for a while, maybe it has beautiful biological soil crust, it hasn't been disturbed, I think there's a very good chance that you have a much higher proportion of natives waiting, annuals or perennials, waiting, um, waiting to germinate in the seed bank and there's a few invasives, but I think in those disturbed, in those undisturbed areas, that proportion is greatly shifted towards being more native dominated. How do you test seed banks? The age-old question. So this is, um, so yeah, as, as a lot of us scientists, the, the methods are really important. How do you test this? When you look at above-ground vegetation, it's very common. You'll get a square, and like a, maybe a one-by-one-meter square, and you'll put it down, and you'll look at it, and you'll say, okay, there's 14 of species X, 14 of species Y, and two of species Z, and then you go on your way. And so that's great. You saw it, and you, you quantified what was there. Seed banks, a little bit different because... Um, you, you want to not know just, you don't want to know just what's there, but you want to know what's viable, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to know, well, what is able to colonize? What is able to germinate? Because that doesn't necessarily mean, maybe the seed hasn't decomposed all the way, but it may not be viable. Mm -hmm. So a way to test that is we call the emergence method. So um, you go out in the field and you take a scoop of soil. Um, I like to get it to about five centimeters of depth because that's really um, where most of the seeds are in the top five centimeters. And then you bring it back to the greenhouse and then you give it just as much water as it wants. Not Don't flood it or anything, but you give it water and then they germinate. And so you get... As again, I'm very partial, but you have these really adorable little Germans. Now <laughs> they're two little cotyledons, or one. Um, and so, and then you count them. And so, um, and that way you can get two species and then the number of seeds in the seed bank. Um, and one question that we talk about a lot in the, the seed bank world is well, maybe we're not giving them the right conditions. So when you take them to the greenhouse and you germinate them, um, and this is actually fun for anyone. I, I'm the seed bank scientist. That's great. But I've had friends be like, I took some soil from my front yard or from my nearby house and I put it in the greenhouse and so much came up. So it's actually fun for kids too. I've had for kids, um, 
friends of mine who have kids and we've kind of just done that exact thing. So, so the emergence method is, is very applicable for us scientists, but it's also just fun to see what's there. So you do the emergence method and then you, um, at the end, you say, okay, well, hopefully we got everything, but then you manually sort. And then you look and you, you kind of, with your little spoon or knife or whatever, you sort through a chunk of the soil to make sure there's no seeds left. And mm-hmm. it's pretty impressive how many those, how many seeds you can get out through emergence method. And we get pretty creative in um, giving them the right amount of water and the right amount of um, light and dark. And, and so, yeah. And sometimes you have to... Um, stratify them, meaning you have to keep them in the cold and dark for a while. So there's a lot of different methods, but really sometimes it's as simple as grabbing the dirt, putting it in the greenhouse and watching it grow. And it's, and again, I say this, I already said this, but it's so fun for kids too, because they can, they can, you can, they can say, but that's our backyard and there was nothing there. And look what was in there. I've had some fun with that. Cool. I <laughs> yeah. want to try that. It's fun. <laughs> um, I wanted to shift gears and mm-hmm. ask... What first got you interested in seed banks? Yes. Um, yeah, and with with most of us scientists, everyone thinks, man, that's a bit obscure. <laughs> where, where did you get started on that? And it started um, my first year of graduate school, actually. I, um, I knew I was going to be working in vernal pools. I knew I wanted to do some sort of restoration ecology. Um, and I started reading about these annual species that store seed banks. And I um, went out to my field site, there was nothing, right? So it's a dry summer, there's no plants there. And then I came back in the spring and it was just this burst of yellow and pink and red and it smelled like honey and it was just just glorious. And I was thinking, where did you guys come from? Where did, you know, and I, I mean, I knew, into, they knew they came from the seed bank, but then I started really thinking about that, of how dynamic and how important the seed bank is from a, both a spatial scale. So if you're looking at this one location, how important they are, but then I really started thinking about them over time. And I think seed banks over time can tell us, like I, like I mentioned, but uh, that seed banks over time can say, you know, this is what was here and this is what could potentially be. So if you're looking at a snapshot of that one point in time, you're looking at the history of the future. And so that's what got me motivated. It was really that we talk about spatial and temporal a lot in science and we talk about, so that's like the space and time. And I think the seed banks can really provide, can really illustrate space and time from a plant perspective. What do you enjoy about being a scientist? I enjoy being a scientist, and I think many of us will answer this, um, is getting to ask questions and finding an answer. Um, you know, using the scientific method is, for those of us who like planning and structure and order, it brings very nice, it's very like ordered and structured, but you also get to be really creative in your questions, and you get to um, get to ask you know, well, but why? And so I would say for me being a scientist, it's, it's that inquiry and that, that um, basis of asking a question, but then not just asking a question, but then figuring out and being creative on how to get the best answer for that question. So it's kind of the whole process. Because I also like the end solution as well. <laughs> I don't like to just ask questions. I like answers as well. So I think that's, as a scientist, kind of my... 
And I also really like talking to people. I like, I like learning from people. And I think as scientists, we are really lucky to be able to have information to share with people. But we also, I've learned so much from talking to my mom, who's a gardener, right? So going back on the seed bank thing, my mom's like, oh, these weeds keep coming up. And I was like, oh, what kind are they, mom? And then we can talk about it. And, and she had some really great insight into how to get those weeds out of her system, or out of her garden. So yeah, so I, I like that too. I like the communication that science provides. It's a, it's a language we can use. Well, thank you so much for this interview, Akasha. Well, thank you for having me. This is fun. Theme music for our show is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by BYU's Charles Red Center for Western Studies. And the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.